You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We have two readings this afternoon. The first one is Psalm 84. For the director of music, according to Gittith, of the sons of Korah, a psalm. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young. A place near your altar, O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord, God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. We now turn to the New Testament. We come to Philippians chapter 1 beginning in the second half of verse 18. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given me by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and will continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus may overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 16 of the Heidelberg Catechism. As we continue in the section of the Catechism, the larger section about our deliverance, the section about the Apostles' Creed. 
We read this there. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testified that he had really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Why is there added, he descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the truth that the Apostle Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the truth that, that's that famous passage where he's speaking about his, his the thorn in his flesh, and how, it, how much pain and weakness it causes him. And the, that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, had said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says that when we are weak, then we are strong. And that truth, that when we're weak, we're strong, is a truth that we need to constantly be reminded. Constantly We need to be reminded of that. I was reminded of that this past week. I was speaking about our congregation's search for a second pastor. Search which thus far hasn't been successful. And I was speaking about how how disappointing that's been. Not so. I was reminded, kindly. This is actually a good thing. Because... Through the weakness that we experience now, God's power is made manifest. It's when we're weak that in fact we're strong. It's when we're weak in ourselves and we rely on the grace of God in Jesus Christ that we become strong. And that's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12. And that that whole letter is about how Paul is sort of fighting against these, these super apostles, these guys who got all the credentials. They're, they're, Paul says somewhat ironically, they're even greater than the apostles. They're the super apostles. And so in contrast to them, then Paul says, okay, let me lay out my credentials for you. Let me, let me boast. And he lays out all his credentials of, of weakness and suffering. And he says, I'll boast in those. He boasts about his weakness. And he says at the end of, of 2 Corinthians 12, that's why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now how does Paul come to this kind of thinking? That when he's weak, he's in fact 
strong. Well, he came to that speaking because God spoke those words to him. But it was, it was, you could say ultimately through his life-changing faith in the Son of God that that reality was impressed upon Paul. Paul knew that he was united to Jesus Christ. And so he knew that he wasn't the first obedient child of God to walk down the path of suffering. He knew that, that suffering and weakness was not out of place in God's kingdom, but that actually suffering and weakness was at the very center of God's kingdom. Because Christ, the preeminent and obedient Son of God, had walked down that path before. He had already worn down that path so that we could follow in his steps. This afternoon, we consider the incredible saving and redeeming power that Christ uh, has unleashed as he walked that path of weakness and suffering, the path of humiliation. As we consider the power of Christ's humiliation. The power of Christ's humiliation. The power of Christ's weakness. That as Christ goes down to the grave, in fact, what he's manifesting, what he's showing, is the power of God to save. And we'll consider in the first place Christ's power to satisfy and deliver. And in the second place, Christ's power to transform. To transform both life and death. So first of all, Christ's power to satisfy. To satisfy what? Well, we're, if we go to the catechism, and we're speaking about the satisfaction of God's truth and justice. Christ has the power to satisfy God's justice and truth. Ever since the fall into sin, human beings, humanity has craved power, idolized power, and sought power. It's, it's natural in us to seek power and to, to understand that, that the way to make things better for ourselves or for our world is to acquire more power for ourselves or for our team or our country or whatever group. Adam, of course, at the very beginning, in the fall into sin, sought power. He wanted the power of God himself. That's what the devil promised to him. And so that led him to rebel against his creator God and precious father. He wanted the power that only God had. And that rebellion by Adam was punished by God with his judgment and curse. Adam sought power. What he got was physical and spiritual death. The spiritual and physical death that God had promised. What Adam got was, was a total change in his, the experience of life as, as peace in life and faithfulness to God gave way to strife in life and selfishness in all his desires. And that continued craving for power. Adam sought power in that fall into sin. And that's been characteristic of, of humanity ever since. All the children of Adam have, seek that same power. And it's clear all throughout history. History is, of course, the history of people and of nations seeking power over one another. 
They've sought power over one another, and they've sought power that even transcended themselves. Emperors have sought to be God. Even heads of the church, the popes of the Middle Ages, sought to have power, political power, over over nations, rather than pursuing humility and devotion to God. And, and we see this, this, this craving for power today as well. We see it when, when mankind... When, when, when people try to convince others that, that God is only a figment of your imagination. That we are the highest beings there are. We ought not to worship some higher power. There is no higher power. There is no God. Stop fooling yourself. We are gods. We see this kind of craving for power when we're promised that, that we have within our grasp by our own ingenuity by our own smarts, by our own power, the ability to to create a bright and beautiful future for ourselves. Get rid of get rid of religion, we're told, leave that aside. Let's create a create a bright and beautiful future for ourselves. Let's create a tower of Babel. Let's exalt ourselves. We see this in so many ways. People abuse power, abuse their status in order to gain more power and more influence over others. But we began speaking about the justice and the truth of God. The justice and the truth of God was that which spoke to Adam immediately after his sin. Even beforehand promising death as a result of his sin. God's justice is that which which demands death as a payment for sin. And his truth is his word, whereby he promised that death would come as a result. And so God's justice and his truth aren't aren't abstract thoughts or ideas. No, they're living and active. God's justice and his truth are characteristics of the living God himself, so that even if you claim to be God... Even if you claim there's no God, you can't get away from the fact that there is a God and that he is a God of justice and of truth. And that kind of craving to power is sin. And it demands punishment. God's justice must be satisfied. Sin must be paid for. And his truth must be vindicated. Rebels, sinners, must be punished According to God's word, God had promised it. Ironically, it was at the beginning when when God spoke those words of curse, that God also spoke the words of life and grace that from the womb of a woman would come a savior, would come the one who would satisfy God's justice and his truth, according to the truth and the justice of God, as God himself spoke those words. God laid out in that promise of a savior from the womb of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. God laid a plan, out a plan of, of salvation for his people and of the glory of his name. A, a plan that would, that would see salvation come to humanity. Humanity that have, had craved power only to fall flat on their face. But, but you, know, you see that God's plan is, is almost ironic. 
it almost seems foolish that God would promise this savior to come from a womb of a woman. The woman had fallen into sin. This savior was to be born of a sinful daughter of Eve herself. And not only that, but can you think of a more helpless kind of savior than a newborn baby? Completely dependent on father and mother. Helpless in this world. A helpless baby is going to come and conquer Satan and his armies. And satisfy the justice and the truth of the almighty God. Yes, that's the plan that God laid out when he made his promise that the Messiah's path would be a humble one, as indeed Christ's was. Because it could be no other way. The Messiah would be born of a woman to share in the humanity that was under God's curse. There was no other way. The Messiah had to be born of a woman. The Messiah had to live a life of suffering. He couldn't be protected in some palace, in some fortress, in some rich country in the world by the greatest power. No, he had to be born to a life of suffering, to a people in bondage under another country, to a tiny little country in the Middle East that was constantly under warfare. He had to be born to that country. He had to live a life of suffering. He had to live under humanity's curse. He had to carry their sorrows. He had to be numbered along with the sinners so that he didn't stand out from any of them when you would look at them. He was considered, along with all of them, to be a sinner. As Isaiah lays out in Isaiah chapter 53. This Messiah not only had to suffer, but he had to be tested at every point in his life so that he would be the truly perfect mediator, as Hebrews 2 lays out, so his life would be difficult, constantly being tested. And not only would his life be difficult and full of suffering, but he had to die. The Messiah would have to die because the justice and truth of God required death as the wages of sin. And so this is the path that God's word lays out that the Messiah is to walk on. And this is the path that Jesus walked during his whole life. And that's what's meant by the Apostles' Creed when it says he descended into hell. Notice how the Catechism explains this. It doesn't say that that at one point Christ Christ went to hell and, and released all the saints as the Roman Catholics taught. Nor does it say that that only on the cross he experienced hellish agony, as as quite often we we understand by this. But look at what it says. By the unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross. You see, this descent into hell didn't start when Jesus was lifted up on the cross or when he was taken down and buried. This descent into hell happened, started when he was born. He descended during his whole life into hell, into the grave. That was the ultimate and the only place where he could end up. Because the justice and the truth of God had to be satisfied. 
And so when Jesus of Nazareth was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, he who had dwelt in glory with God humbled himself and he began to walk that path of humility and suffering. He walked that path of sorrow and shame because there was no other way. And the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, the good news of Jesus Christ is that he did walk that path. He walked every step that God called him to walk. Every sorrowful, every suffering, every painful step that God called him to walk. He walked under God's curse in obedience to God himself. He did it to satisfy the justice of God because there was no other way. He had to suffer that all the way to the point of death so that we, so that we would not have to walk that path and experience that anguish of the curse of God and the sorrow of hell. He walked every step of that path so that we could be brought into fellowship with God himself. Now that's power, isn't it? Every step of his life, he was walking in weakness. But yet, he unleashed the power of salvation. But it's a power that's only discovered on the path of weakness, as the Apostle Paul recognized. As every humble and repentant Christian has recognized. Walking that path of suffering and death in our place, Jesus Christ has transformed our experience of suffering and of death. Last week, we we spent some time considering how Christ's suffering transforms ours. And now as we move on, we'll consider that his power reaches beyond even the, the trials and the sufferings that we experience in this life. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ reaches beyond life into the grave. And it reaches beyond the the trials and the sufferings and it transforms our whole life as well. So that the power of Jesus Christ transforms our lives from cradle to beyond the grave. And so we consider, secondly, his power to transform. First of all, his power to transform death. Death, the reality of death, is where the rubber hits the road for us, isn't it? When the cancer is terminal, when the organs are shutting down, when the breathing stops, when you stand there at the graveside of a loved one, Someone who only days earlier had been alive with you and now, now they're gone. Then death isn't a possibility. It's a reality. And right there in that moment, in the face of the reality of death, then faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ is either embraced Or it's rejected. It's where the rubber hits the road for our faith, isn't it? In the face of death. Now we must acknowledge that death remains an enemy 
today. It is. Death brings an end to relationships. Death brings a separation. We're taught to believe, of course, and, and it's natural because, because death just seems to happen so much. There, there is death around us. We know that unless the Lord Jesus Christ returns, we are going to die. And so it seems that, that natural, that death is natural until, of course, you experience a death. You experience the death of a loved one, and then you realize that, that this is the most unnatural thing there is. This is not a natural thing. This is the breaking of a relationship. These bonds of relationship were not meant to be broken. Yes, death brings pain and grief, real pain and real grief. We, as, as the people of God, need to affirm this because the Word of God affirms this. Death is an enemy. Death is something to be grieved. Death brings pain. But at the same time, we must hear the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, that although we grieve, we do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. No, through the gospel, in the face of death, we have hope. We have pain, but at the very same time, we have hope. And you have been blessed if you've ever been close to someone as they walked close to death and experienced this. This this hope that extends beyond the grave. You've been blessed if you've seen a loved one, though death was imminent for them, they rejoiced. Because they knew the hope of the gospel. They could they could go to their grave in peace and joy. How can they go to this, this place of sadness and sorrow and grief and joy? Well, because Christ has gone there first and he's transformed death. Look at how the, the catechism very simply but, but profoundly states it in question and answer 42. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? What a simple question. Why do we still have to die? And what's the answer? Our death is not a payment for our sins. But it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. The payment has been made by Jesus Christ and credited to our account for all who live by faith. And so death is not a payment. It cannot be. Because Christ has, has paid that price already for us. That payment has been made. And so, so there's no payment possible in death anymore. And so the question, why? What is death for the Christian? Well, it is an end to sin. It's an end to sin for the believer. The sin that even the believer, and even the mature believer, and even the one who's been a believer for a long, long time still struggles with. Death puts an end to that struggle. And believers know too that you don't only struggle with your own sin, but you have to put up with the sin of everyone else around you as well. Well, in death, you don't have to put up with that anymore. As you, death puts an end to sin. But death is, 
Not only that, even more, because it's because death is an entrance into eternal life that it puts an end to sin. And we can be so thankful for these words of the Apostles Paul in Philippians, uh, of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1. As he writes about that struggle between life and death. And we can find a lot of hope and comfort and guidance in those words. Because on the one hand, Paul affirms the value of life, doesn't he? He affirms the purpose that God has given him in this life. He doesn't just sit there and and pine for death. And say, Lord, there's no reason for me to be alive. I only want to be with Christ. No, he affirms the value of life and the purpose that God has given him. And if, and he does that with the rest of scripture. Psalm 150. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. We live on this earth to glorify and praise God. We don't simply live to die and be with Christ. But we live for the service and honor of God through Jesus Christ. But at the same time, what happens to those who die? They go to be with Christ, which, as Paul says, is is greater by far. And the words that he uses there is more like something like it's much greater, better. He can't find a normal way of expressing how great it is to go and to be with Christ. He's got a purpose and he's firmly grounded in that purpose. But yet he looks forward with hope. It's much greater, better. I'd rather be there with Christ. For some, death is a release from suffering. We prayed about the loved ones of some members in our congregation this morning. For whom death was, was a release. It was a, it was something that we could praise God for because we could see that now their suffering was over. Sometimes when death comes, we wonder, well, where was the suffering beforehand? This person had their life ahead of them. What's going on? Why would God take them now? Shouldn't they decline and then God take them home? But what Paul expresses here, as he, from what we know, is in the prime of life. He, he's, he's right in the center of things, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's got a purpose in this world. But yet even for him, it's much better, greater to be with Christ. You don't just leave the sin and the suffering of life behind when you die, but you also gain the presence, the sight, the beautiful vision of the glory of Jesus Christ. You gain the warmth of his fellowship in a way that you can experience now while sin still clings to us and the light of his beauty. When that that veil of sin is lifted then you can finally behold the stunning beauty of the church's bridegroom and worship unhindered, unhindered from that sin and that selfishness that's been characteristic of you ever since you were conceived. You shed it, you leave it behind, and you can worship Christ in his full glory. Don't you long for that? Don't you long for that? Do those words of Psalm 84, do they well up in your heart? How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My flesh and my heart cry out for the living God. Does the prayer of Psalm 27 find its way on your lips? One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Yes, we worship God now. But when the veil of sin is lifted, when when pride and selfishness are gone, then these words will become even more true and beautiful for us. That's what awaits the believer who dies in the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Jesus transforms death. He went to the grave and he transformed it. But he does more as well. Sometimes that desire for the the, this vision of Christ, the vision of the glory of Christ has been so captivating for people that, that they've, they've tried to gain it before their time. They want to see it for themselves. You can think of the, the, um, the monks in the early Eastern church. They, they would go out into the desert. They would deprive themselves of food and water. They would try to shed this earthly existence before God called them home in order to, to gain a vision of the beauty of Christ. But the glory of Christ doesn't only appear in severe suffering, nor does it only invade and overpower the fortress of death. But in fact, the glory of Christ invades every crevice and corner, every street and alley, every step and every breath of life itself. Already now we begin to see and experience the glory of Jesus Christ. In John 5 verse 24, Jesus says that we have been brought over from death to life. And when he says that, he's not speaking about just what happens when we actually die, that then eternal life begins. But he's saying that already in our life, this eternal life begins. Death is is a, is a major point of transition in that journey. But already now, eternal life begins. By faith in Jesus Christ, we are made alive. Our hearts are awakened. Our blood begins to truly flow. Christ sets us free from the prison of sin and liberates us from under the power of Satan so that already now we can live in that victory over death and over sin that Christ has accomplished. And you know what the result of that is? When you, by faith and believe in Jesus Christ and you're liberated from sin and Satan, you're free to serve God, you know what happens as a result? Death. Through Christ's death, we read in answer 43, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him. Death. Constant Sacrifice is what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. And what he also says in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ so that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In death, we look forward to to shedding our selfishness completely. But by faith in the Son of God, we already begin to shed that selfishness. So that I don't live and I don't live for me, but I live for Christ and Christ lives in me. You see, we all recognize that 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 
forced and oppressive slavery is terrible and cruel. And that, that's in a sense what happens to us in our sin. It's an oppressive slavery. But, but what do you think of the person whose life has been saved by someone else? And they say to them, I will now place my life at your disposal. You have saved my life, and now my life belongs to you. I am your humble servant. We know that that's an honorable thing. We honor that person. We honor that service in the unrepayable debt of gratitude. Oh, sorry, that service is an unrepayable debt of gratitude. Gratitude. Brothers and sisters, when you recognize that Jesus Christ has saved you from death, then the only suitable response is the gratitude of love, of self-sacrifice, and of reverent worship. When you recognize that Jesus Christ has saved you from the fiery judgment of hell, then you know that, well, before you could not offer yourself to him because you were dead. Now you've been made alive so you can offer yourself to him. Now you may. You may. You've been given a will. You've been made alive so that now you you may offer yourself as a sacrifice of thankfulness. He offered himself as a sacrifice of atonement to bring you near to God so that you could offer yourself as a sacrifice of thankfulness to God. He has walked that path for us so that we might follow in his steps. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.